Church, this morning we are back in the book of Exodus, and we are in Exodus chapter 33. We are in the whole chapter. We're kind of going to make a sprint to the finish here as we look forward to in the new year finishing this book that we have been so long in. Uh, and today we're taking all of Exodus chapter 33. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33 and stand with me for the reading of God's word as we read this whole entire passage. Let us pay attention to God's word. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people, if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take, to, used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, you have also, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to them, and he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring me, bring us bring us up from here, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for, my, for man shall not see me and live. 
And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, Happy New Year, church. It is a real joy for me to be up here again in the pulpit, to be able to bring you God's word. And uh, given that it is the new year, I'm sure many of you, or maybe some of you, uh, are doing what has been a long-held tradition. From what I read, it's a tradition for over 3,000 years of people making a new year resolution. A new year's resolution. Uh, recently, there's been a trend that instead of making a resolution, people will instead just choose a word, one word, that will be their personal mantra through the year. Uh, an example of this is some people will say, uh, my word is going to be courage. And so throughout the year, they'll just tell themselves, courage, 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 courage. Or maybe something like um, connect or something. You know, they'll say a word like that and they'll say, connect, 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 connect throughout the year. Uh, for the rest of us, I think we're used to making some New Year resolutions. Maybe it's going to be something like um, uh, your, your New Year resolution is you're going to sleep more. Uh, or maybe your uh, New Year resolution is going to be exercise or whatever it might be. We might even have some great spiritual goals for this new year. We might have some spiritual goals like I'm going to get through reading the Bible in a year. Uh, or maybe you're going to say, uh, you know, I'm going to show up at prayer meeting on Sunday mornings at 8.15. And all such resolutions are very good. And uh, I would encourage you to make resolutions, uh, do good works, uh, kill sin, and, and, and learn new things. And th those types of uh, resolutions are wonderful. But perhaps the most important question to ask ourselves in all these resolutions is if God is there. In all these things, are we, as maybe Jonathan Edwards would say, cast and venture our souls upon the Lord? Is there a deepening of our relationship with Him? You know, it's really easy with enough fortitude, with enough discipline to get through a Bible reading plan. It's very easy, I think, to go to Sunday school and study God's Word and Go to small group and even be stimulated in your thoughts about God. But the question is if God is present in any of that. That is the question before us as we approach the 33rd chapter of Exodus. Chapter 33 deals with the presence of God. Now, you'll recall from a couple of weeks ago that the chapter we were in before, chapter 32, is all about the incident with the golden calf. Uh, Israel rebelled against God. They made a golden calf to worship. And God said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. But Moses would not let God alone, as we saw. Moses intercedes with a desperate prayer before God. 
and on behalf of the people, and he makes his case to God. Not based off his own name, but based off of the worth of God's name. Don't do this thing. And God relents. He does. And all he does is appoint the sons of Levi to kill 3,000 men and send a plague among the people. A, a light affliction for what they have done. But the consequences of Israel are not over, as we see in chapter 33, because God withdraws his presence from the people of God. We see the issue of God's presence this morning unfold in two parts, on two events. First, in verses 1 through 11, there is a lament over God's absence. There's a lament over God's absence. God announces in verses 1 through 2 some surprising news to Moses and Israel. They're going to go to Canaan. They're going to make it. Their enemies are going to be driven away. They're going to go into a land flowing with milk and honey. And when Moses hears this, he must have been exhilarated, excited. And he must have just breathed a sigh of relief. Yes, God is going to fulfill his covenant, his promise to Abraham. But there's one problem. Although the Israelites are still going to the promised land, God has decided he's not going to make the trip. You see that in verse 3? He says, I will not go among you. This is an act of judgment from God. The physical punishments that we saw in chapter 32 were signs of a bigger spiritual reality. There's a broken relationship between God and his people. This is also an act of mercy from God. He says, you're a stiff-necked people. If, while I, if we're going to Canaan and I'm going with you, there might be a moment that I will come and strike you down because you are such a stiff-necked people. So I'm going to distance myself from you. Because I don't want to consume you in righteous anger. You see, the Israelites are right now facing a life without God. They would, there would be no divine presence in their camp. All the instructions that we saw earlier in, verse, in chapters 25 through 30 about the tabernacle are thrown away. There's, no more, there's more, no more need for an altar for sacrifices. There's no more need for a, for a, a, a prayer of incense, a table with bread, uh, with the bread of the presence. No more need of any of that. No more need for an Ark of the Covenant by which atonement would be made. No more glory of God dwelling in the midst of his people. Oh, these Israelites, they're booked for the promised land. But God has canceled his reservations. Yet look at the people's response in verses 4 through 6. As much as we like to dog on Israel, this is a good response. First, when the people heard this disastrous word, they, what's the word there? They mourned. They wept. 
to them hearing this news was like God had given them a death sentence. And second, the Israelites repent. It says in these verses that they take off their ornaments. And when we kind of see that word, we might be thinking, wait, I didn't know the Israelites had Christmas trees. But that's not what it means. It means jewelry or any sort of fancy adornment that they might be wearing. They would take them off. Uh, this is a symbolic sign of repentance. Uh, we kind of understand that how our outer appearance, how we dress is sometimes reflective of what's going on inside. We, we go to a funeral, and we don't dress in bright colors. We dress in black. And so it is with Israel. They strip themselves of their ornaments. They, they forcefully, the word is there, took them away. In verse 6, it says that they did so from Mount Horeb onward. In other words, this is a permanent change. They stop wearing jewelry altogether. You know, before, what did they do with their jewelry? They took off their earrings to what? Make a golden calf, to worship this golden calf. And now they're taking it off and saying, because we want to worship the one true God. So very briefly in verses 7 through 11, we see an example of this loss of God's presence. You know, we might take a look at verses 7 through 11 in this tent meeting, we be a little confused. It seems to kind of mess up the story arc right here. But the whole deal with the tent of meeting is about the diminished presence of God among the people. Earlier, God says in chapters 25 through 30 that he gives these instructions about the tabernacle. Why? So that God says, I want to dwell among my people, to be in the midst of them. And now, he's not. Where's the tent? It's smaller now. It's not the tent that God had designed earlier. It's smaller now. And, and where is it now? It's outside, the it's outside the camp. For them to worship God, they, they had to stand far off. Instead of priests serving in the temple, there was only one person that mans the temple or mans the tent. And that's Joshua. Only one person enters the tent to meet with God, and that's Moses. God is distant from his people, and his presence is diminished. This is a sad state of affairs for Israel. But what I want us to focus on is how they responded. Don't underestimate how significant their response is. Consider what God was offering the Israelites. He was offering to bless them without having a relationship with them. Look what they got. They still got the promised land. Enemies are still thwarted, but there's no relationship. And that is exactly how most people think about Christianity. It's true. Most people want God to help them to overcome their life struggles. They want God to get them into the promised land, but they're not at all interested in having a relationship with the living God. Defeat all my enemies, God. Now give me a community. Give me my own tribe. Let me into the kingdom. But a relationship? Mm. His presence? Some of you know I'm planning on going on a sabbatical, on my sabbatical later this year. 
And uh, believe it or not, I've been planning for it for over a year. Actually, Shirley's been planning for it for over a year, for me to go on my sabbatical. And uh, over a year ago, she said, I know that you always wanted to go to Israel, so I have these dates planned for you to go to Israel. This is before the war, okay? Uh, so she planned for me to go to Israel, and I looked at the dates, and I said, but it's in the middle of the school year. So um, are we taking the kids out of school? She said, no, no, they'll stay here. And I said, okay, so who's looking after the kids when we go? She says, well, I just kind of thought you'd go by yourself. <laughs> now, I had, a, I had a, there was a brief moment where I said, this, this sounds kind of good. But then there's a moment that said, no. It didn't matter if I could just enjoy hummus every day and climb Masada and see all the sights and do the things that every pastor should do, which is go to Israel. I did say, I don't care if I could FaceTime home. I don't want to go if you don't go with me. I think that's the right response. <laughs> and the Israelites, however, certainly have the right response. This is a wise and appropriate response to this disastrous word. They mourn at the thought of not being in a right relationship with God. They mourn, they lament over the idea of not being in God's presence. It reminds me of that quote from that question that John Piper asks in his book, God is the Gospel. He says this, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all your friends you have ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? And Charles Spurgeon said it this way, oh, to think of heaven without Christ, it is the same thing as thinking of hell heaven without Christ, it is a day without the sun, existing without life, feasting without food, seeing without light, his company itself is heaven. You see, Israel's heart is, is in the right place. They repent, they mourn, and they do this because they want to be in relationship with God. This is everything for them. As far as they're concerned, you give me the promised land, you deliver my enemies, I get the milk, I get the honey, but it doesn't matter because you, God, are not with us. They don't want to be led by an angel. They want to walk with God. And so, church, we ought to be, too, persuaded to love God more than we love his blessings. Because some of us, we want the presence of God, but not the presence of God. You know what I mean? We want the gifts, but not the giver. We'll take a comfortable church. We'll take a community. We'll take the prayers that we get, the meals that we get all the time as a church community. But communing with God, sometimes we just, you know, relationship is work. Relationship with God, that means I have to talk to him. That means I have to listen to him. That means there are demands on me. Oh, just give me the good stuff. Give me the promises. Church. Here's a time where we can look at these stiff-necked Israelites as an example. And to yearn desperately to live in the presence of God, let's be determined to say it's better to be single with the Lord than to be married outside his will.
let's be determined to say it is better for me to be with the Lord in the valley of the shadow of death than to be in green pastures without him. Let us be determined to say it is better to be persecuted for righteousness with him than to have the world's acceptance without him. Well, in verses 1 through 11, there is a lament over God's absence. In verses 12 through 23, we see a prayer for God's presence. I have to hurry along a little bit here, but we move from a lament over God's absence to a prayer for God's presence. And Moses really has three requests in these verses. His first prayer is, is in verses 12 through 14. And first Moses prays and he says, stay with me. That's essentially what he says in these, in these verses. Moses says, you've given me a commission to bring up these, these Israelites, but who is going to go with me? You said there's going to be some angel, but I don't care about some angel. I want you to go with me, Lord. I want to know your mind. I want to know you. He is like a deer panting and thirsting after God. He wants to remain in constant communication with God, and God graciously responds and says, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. God says, when my presence is with you, that is when you have rest. And incidentally, we shouldn't miss that there is no real lasting rest apart from the knowledge that God is with you. Some of us, some of you are constantly restless in life. You're restless about yourself, your family, your career, about where you fit in, and, and all those types of things. And you don't really know that the rest that comes from God saying, I will be with you. The rest that comes from saying, as we have just sung even earlier, that he's going to lead us all the way. That he's going to go before us. He's going to come alongside us, and he's going to hem us in from behind. You know, it's like that with a child. There's all sorts of scary things out there that a child sometimes has to do. But when they know mommy and daddy are there, it gives them a little bit more pluck, doesn't it? They're more ready to keep going. Even if it's something they haven't encountered before, they say, mommy and daddy are with me. And so Moses says, stay with me. And that is the first request. But Moses is dissatisfied with the state of negotiation if I can speak of it that way. So Moses boldly goes into the presence of God with more arguments. Instead of saying, stay with me, Moses now says, go with us. Go with us. Verse 15, Moses says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us. All of a sudden, he's going into the first person plural. And then he says twice in verse 16, he pleads, I and your people. I and your people. Moses isn't looking for himself looking at just for himself. Let's think of the interests of others. So verse 16 is staggering. He says, it is not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. What's Moses saying there in verse 16? What's going to distinguish Israel from every other nation? His presence. Isn't that amazing? Was it going to be the land that distinguished them? No, they didn't have any land. Was it going to be their pedigree? Well, they're slaves. Their obedience and righteousness, they're a stiff-necked people. 
What set them apart was not their religious practices, not their morals, not their heritage, but who was with them, their relationship with God. Well, Moses continues on, and he says this, and God answers, and he says, this very thing you have spoken, I will do. God says yes to Moses' prayer request. But Moses isn't done. He has one more request. He says, please show me your glory. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I was wondering, why is he asking this question? I mean, he has seen the glory of God. God has already said yes to his prayer requests. He's seen the glory of God more than any other person. He's seen God in the burning bush. He's seen God bring the ten plagues. He's seen God's glory as he, part, as he parts the Red Sea. He's seen God's glory as he ascended Mount Sinai and received the ten commandments. He has seen the glory of God. Isn't that enough? So why is he asking? I think it's because God said yes to his previous request. I think Moses knew he had just asked God for something unthinkable in his previous prayer, that God would dwell among a stiff-necked people. And he's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. There's something else going on here because God said yes. There's something else beyond how good I am or how good the Israelites are. There's something else happening here. God, I want to know you more. What is happening? Who, what, who are you? What are you like? Are you this forgiving God? And God, and so Moses asked in earnest, show me your glory. I want to know you. Of course, Moses can't get a full-on sight of God and his glory. You might be able to see and feel the, the rays of the sun. You might be able to stare intently at the light or from the shadow that's, that's created by the sun. But you can't stare directly at the sun without eventually damaging yourself. So it is with God's glory. God says, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you with my hand. And when I lift my hand, you'll see... Just the afterglow of my glory. Now, God doesn't have hands and he doesn't have a backside. It's not like, um, it's not like God, you know, is this that Moses saw some, you know, big giant with a big broad back or anything like that. But what does Moses see? And we'll talk about that more next week. But Moses sees by hearing. And that's usually how it is. Sight comes through the ears. And the Lord shows his goodness by speaking two things. First, he says, I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And he declares his character, which is associated with his name. Verse 19, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now, if you're reading verse 19, and you're asking yourself, it sounds a little bit, like God chooses some and not others. If you're reading verse 19 and you're reading it, it sounds as if he can be gracious to some and also places judgment on others. Well, that's exactly what God is saying. God is saying he's free. He is not constrained by anybody. 
He is free to show mercy to whomever and whenever. That's what it means for God to be God. It's his name. It's his glory. That's why Romans 9.15, when Paul is dealing with accusations about God's, uh, God being unjust because he's sovereign. Because God chooses some and not others. Because God chose Jacob and not Israel. How does Paul respond? He responds with Exodus 33, 19. He says, God is gracious to whom he will be gracious and merciful to whom he will be merciful. Why does he respond that way? Because that's his character. That's who he is. This is free decision to show undeserved mercy to whom he will, describes and defines what it means for God to be God. And it's significant here as we go look at Exodus 33 that Moses doesn't get into an argument with God. He doesn't say, hmm, it sounds a little unfair, God, that you're going to be gracious to whom you'll be gracious and merciful to whom you'll be merciful. No, this is the exactly kind of answer that Moses needed to press on. This is the exact answer he wanted. God is showing his goodness here. God will uphold his covenant with his people not because they're good enough to, keeping, to keep the rules. Not because they have something inherently good about them, but because he is God and he is gracious and merciful. It's not dependent on the people. It's not dependent on Moses. It's dependent on God. He will see them through. This is what theologians call the unconditional election. And this is God's unconditional election of Israel. And this was a precious, precious balm to both Israel and Moses. And it should be a precious balm for God's people today. Especially to the weak in faith. Any of you who have doubts. To those who are honest with themselves and know how stiff-necked they are. To those who have feelings that are dark and it feels like God is so distant and he'll never love me? To those who wonder, can God really show someone like me grace? Can he really have mercy on me? And that, if that's any of you this morning, I want you to hear your father's reply without equivocation and with a smile he says, I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and merciful. those I will show mercy. Hear him say, I choose you not because you're good, but because I am. It doesn't matter how depressed you are or how stiff-necked you might be, you cannot stop my choice. Your sins cannot spoil my freedom when I set my love upon you. I am free to show you mercy, free to show you grace, free to keep you in my love, however you might be feeling. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder if you've ever had that thought that God is unfair or unjust. Have you ever thought that because God saves some and not others, that God is not fair? Because it's true, God does save some and not others. He extends salvation freely to all. He offers it all freely in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But only those who accept the gospel will be saved. 
Now, is that fair? You might be asking, why doesn't God save everyone? Well, that kind of question is assuming that mercy and grace is what everyone deserves. That assumes grace is something we're due, that we deserve to have our sins wiped out, that we deserve to be in a relationship with God. But the whole point of grace and mercy is that God doesn't treat us as we deserve. He treats us better than we deserve. The whole point of our salvation is that against everything we've done, he freely chooses to show grace and mercy. The miracle and the marvel is that he shows mercy to some and he offers it freely to all. So will you come to him today? Today if you're in his hearing, God is giving you and offering you mercy and grace right now. Judgment has not come yet. Is today the day of your salvation? Will you turn to the Lord? Church, as we close this morning, I hope you see that the presence of God is at the very heart of the gospel. Emmanuel, God with us, is not any old God, but an infinite sovereign God who draws near, near to us to be with us. And while Moses' prayer to see God's glory is denied, we know that the greater mediator, Jesus Christ, prayed that his people would see his glory. Did you know that in John 17, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Our greatest resolution for the new year, our greatest need is the presence of Christ, to see more of his glory, to grow in greater affection for him. And what's wonderful about this great need of ours is that it is promised to us. God has already promised it to us. When you were saved, God has given the Holy Spirit to abide in you. And what's more, he says that he will never leave you or forsake you. You need to know that God is a God of sovereign grace, and you need to know that he is right here with you, and he can bring you all the way into the promised land. For he is God, and you are his people. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to, we pray and ask to see your glory, the glory of the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. How amazing it is to know that to see you is to see the Father. To see Christ is to see the Father. How amazing it is that we can see more of the glory than Moses. We know more of your goodness and more of your glory because we know Christ. And we ask that you would show us much of your glory now. As much as, as, much as we can presently bear. Until the day when we will no longer see dimly, but be like Christ and see him face to face. Uh, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, Exodus.